0: I feel badly for General Flynn. He's lost his house, he's lost his life, and some people say he lied, and some people say he didn't lie. I mean, really, it turned out maybe he didn't lie.
1: Roger Stone has already made so many public statements that are inconsistent one to the other.
0: The
2: filing shows the Cohen's cooperation did not just begin and end with Mueller, which alone would be a big deal
1: a chance to go inside the White House with the First Lady. You
2: could see the color red. It represents
1: the bravery, heart, and patriotism. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So sometimes I say that at this moment in history, the dominant spectacle of American life has been like two cable channels simultaneously one channel shows a mashup of the surreal life and celebrity rehab some of these people really were on celebrity rehab starring kanye west michael cohen rudolph Giuliani, roger stone pamela anderson flavor Flav. i think uh, michael cohen alex jones paul manafort michael flynn uday and kuse trump and howard stern's old whack pack not hank the angry drunken dwarf but the president of the united states donald trump On the other channel is Law & Order. Now, quietly purring along, overseen by a white-hat lawman, beloved of women and men alike, this is a satisfying procedural in which justice is always served. But finally, the reality show, the first one, has lost its luster. And I suspect there won't be another Kim Jong-un, Donald Trump meeting with Dennis Rodman in a pot Bitcoin t-shirt against fake plastic Melania trees doused in blood anytime soon. The ratings are on that other channel, the procedural. And with so many new viewers defecting from the sideshow, the Law & Order channel has now been divided into two parts, the procedurals and the detective shows, the courtroom drama and the kind of murder on the Orient Express. Yes, we know everyone did it, but it's still interesting to find out how they get there. Now, the cast of the procedurals are the commenters and analysts who know the law, Dahlia Lithwick, Ben Wittes, Susan Hennessy, Mimi Rocha, Mika Oyang, Joyce Aileen. You know, lots of the guests we've had on this show. And they aren't fact-finding in this case. They're commenting on how all this goes down legally, how this maddeningly expansive case of Trump-Russia gets prosecuted, and what remedies the law does and doesn't offer for this catastrophic president. Now, on the other hand, the detectives on La Faire Russe are the investigative reporters. These numbers are fewer because their work is so financially and personally costly. They include Craig Unger, Franklin Foer, Anthony Cormier, Jason Leopold, Luke Harding, Carol Cadwallader. Now, these people don't opine. They fly to Moscow, though. They take 4 a.m. calls from Felix Sater and Paul Manafort. They collect receipts. They get called russophobic and paranoid. They've studied the pings from Alpha Bank, the history of Natalia Veselnitskaya's effort to destroy Bill Browder, the Russian thugs of Brighton Beach, what Eric Trump said to his preschool teacher, and what Steve Schmidt calls the crooks, weirdos, and wife beaters that are Rob Goldstone, Rob Porter, Jerry Corsi, Mark Kazowitz, Steve Bannon, Sam Nunberg, Ivanka Trump, and Brett Kavanaugh. Those guys spend more time in bars than on MSNBC, and we need them. But my guest today is something else altogether. He's a synthesizer of the work of all these people and a curator of both the best analysis and the best investigative work. He has a reputation as both the most careful and the most obsessive commenter on Trump Russia on Twitter. He's Seth Abramson, the author of Proof of Collusion. Haters, hush. Can you guys even tell Amin Agalarov from Aras Agalarov? Do you guys even know what it means when people refer to the Seychelles or Jared Kushner in Qatar? Love him or hate him, Seth is fascinating, and he gets it right more often than not. And for my money, he's like the Google of Trump Russia, and I'm about to put in a lot of queries. I'll be back after the break with Seth Abramson.
0: I will never testify against Trump. This statement was recently made by Roger Stone, essentially stating that he will not be forced by a rogue and out-of-control prosecutor to make up lies and stories about, quote, President Trump, close quote. Nice to know that some people still have guts. We are either going to have a real deal with China or no deal at all, at which point we will be charging major tariffs against Chinese product being shipped into the United States. Ultimately, I believe we will be making a deal either now or into the future. I am Tariff Man. When people or other countries come and to raid the great wealth of our nation, I want them to pay for the privilege of doing so. It will always be the best way to max out our economic power. We are right now taking in billions in tariffs. Make America rich again. Michael Cohen asks judge for no prison time. You, me. He could do all of the terrible, unrelated to Trump, things having to do with fraud, big loans, taxis, etc., and not serve a long prison term. He makes up stories to get a great and already reduced deal for himself and get his wife and father-in-law, who has money off scot-free. He lied for this outcome and should, in my opinion, serve a complete and full sentence.
1: Joining me on the line is Seth Abramson, the author of the encyclopedic bestseller about Trump-Russia, Proof of Collusion. Welcome, Seth. Thank you for having me. I think the last time we connected was when I interviewed you maybe a year and a half ago via email about the then-nascent form of the Twitter thread. You and a handful of other people really found themselves in this form, and it's a form everyone likes to laugh at. But, you know, in 10 years, if not sooner, we will say, remember that we had these thoughtful, principled essays filled with links where we lived out these complicated times. We lived out this history. They're certainly as good as the late night talk shows that defined the Watergate era. How did you decide that this both minimalist and maximalist form, the long Twitter thread, was for you?
2: Well, I tend to think of myself as someone who's half a cynic and half an optimist. And the optimistic part of me really thinks that people today have more patience, commitment, attention span, passion for the issues than we give them credit for. And I think a lot of people like me are a little bit sick of social media in terms of its restrictions, particularly the way that it convinces us that bite-size, flavor-free nuggets of knowledge are something that we're all craving, when in fact, I think we're really ready for something different. So I had a theory. And, and to be honest, you know, post internet cultural theory is one of the things I teach here. So I think about mm-hmm. the internet a lot. I had a theory that people actually did want longer form writing, even on a short form medium, like Twitter.
1: Mm-hmm. And I mean, you were absolutely right. And since you know, that dark day in 2016 that we dare not speak its name. Twitter has actually changed to accommodate threading. You know, they used to be called tweet storms, and they were just a series of discrete tweets. Then people realized you could reply to yourself and create sort of a chain of tweets. And then Twitter itself incentivized doing it by weaving into the design an easier way to do this. You know, it's worth taking the time, I think, to talk formally about the way you investigated Trump Russia from the beginning or synthesized or as you say curated information about it because it's such as you say an unmanageable story no mind no one mind is equal to the task of understanding all this
2: well you know one thing that that really stays with me is that when twitter instituted the threading function they did it in a way that showed that they actually didn't understand threading very well because hmm. when you post a thread using their function all of the tweets post at one time But what people really want, what I too want as a reader, is actually serialization over time, meaning that people do like having to wait a minute or two for the next tweet. They like being able to respond to a tweet and see you respond back to or incorporate maybe a question they're asking into your thread, all things that you can't do with the Twitter function. So when I thread, it's much more interactive. It really makes use of the fourth dimension of time in a way that the Twitter thread function doesn't. And I think that's more conducive to this story, which, as you said, is so complex and requires a level of interactivity and interconnectivity between threads and knowledge and subject areas and old articles like we've never seen before.
1: You're on book tour for your book, Proof of Collusion, which is riveting and a page-turner. But how do you explain to nieces and nephews or someone on a plane what the hell happened? over the last decades that gave us this catastrophic White House?
2: Well, so I think there are two questions in terms of what led to Trump's particular Russia policy, what led to his collusion, and then there's what led to the election of Trump. Which one are you more interested in in the question?
1: I want to give you a chance to tell it all. So (laughs) wherever you think is the beginning,
2: Well, I would say this. I think that at some point along the way, politics changed such that us electing technocrats who were well-intentioned, but policy wonks became not exactly what was conducive to our media environment or what voters were really looking for. And so I really even think with the election of Barack Obama, there was a sign that voters wanted someone who was iconic, who was a standalone figure, who was different from everyone else and really felt to be out of time or space or culture in a certain way that just fascinated the eye and the mind. And so I think there's even a way in which Donald Trump is the antithesis of Obama, but in a certain way what he represents in our politics, that fascination with the singular figure who has their own sort of meta narrative and way of being in the world is one of the things that helped him get elected. And I think people too infrequently draw the tie between the sort of figure conceptually Barack Obama was and Donald Trump, again, conceptually in our media culture.
1: Yeah, I mean, the political circumstances that gave us Trump and the sort of media circumstances are one thing. But tell me about Donald Trump himself, since it stretches back decades, the thing that led him and the people around him To corruption, collusion, complicity, you do have to go back some ways. Do you date some of this stuff to Fred Trump? Do you think that the early housing developments where they use discriminatory renting practices, do you think that's part of it? Or do you think it starts later when Trump gets involved with the mob in Atlantic City? Where do you start the story?
2: Well, in Proof of Collusion, I really date it to 1987 when Donald Trump publishes Art of the Deal and then he also makes a trip to Moscow. Uh, and comes back clearly politicized. And from 1987 onward, his business operation is dramatically reliant on Russian money, as Donald Trump Jr. said in 2008, disproportionately reliant on Russian oligarchs and Russian money, and specifically people connected to, yes, Russian mafia and the Kremlin. And so that really continued for several decades, and it led to around 2013, when he goes to Moscow for the Miss Universe pageant, a historically pro-Russia foreign policy that was worth trillions, trillions, not billions, to Vladimir Putin in unilaterally ending the sanctions put on Russia for the 2014 Crimea invasion and had no benefit whatsoever to America. And that foreign policy was basically bought and paid for by the Kremlin in advance.
1: Okay, so 87. What else do you know about that trip?
2: So he was invited out there by a high-ranking diplomat. He stayed in a hotel and in a suite in a hotel where you ask any expert, and if you were quoted in proof of collusion, it's a situation where he would have been under surveillance at that point by the KGB. He had big designs, and he was talking with high-level people in Moscow, the mayor of Moscow, from very early on, not just about building one building but building many buildings in Moscow. Donald Trump really saw Moscow as one of the major cities that the Trump organization would be in. And what's so interesting is he kept failing at Mm -hmm. trying to cut deals in Russia in 87, in 1996, in all sorts of ventures that he tried to bring to Russia that didn't succeed until it became clear to the, the Kremlin that he was going to run for president. And suddenly everything started coming up roses for him with Russia.
1: To go back to, to the late 80s, the 80s had been this heyday of this sort of investment banker figure. But by the time I graduated from college in the early 90s, it seemed like if you were seeking your fortune and a recent college graduate, you might have been drawn either to the Internet or to the former Soviet state. It was seen as a place where there was lots of opportunity and also this feel-good thing when the wall came down that there might be harmony and an end to the Cold War. At least that's how it looked over here. The father of a friend of mine who'd been in the defense industry and was out of work after the Cold War went over also to do some kind of wildcatting and set up phone lines, I guess. And when he came back, I said, do you have a lot of trouble with the mafia? And he said, what? The mafia are our partners. So this might be like 1995. I mean, Trump wasn't alone in going to Russia under the banner of the Russians love their children too, and we're going to all come together. But then also the spectacle that he likes, the aesthetic that he shares with Russian cabaret types, and then also the opportunity to do business in a place where stealing is the norm without the rule of law, with a kind of mob ethos that clearly appealed to him.
2: Yeah, and that particular ethos in Russia, that corrupt matrix of business, mafia, oligarchs, and government has been in place for decades, before the fall of the Soviet Union and after. I think it got no better after Vladimir Putin came to power in 2000. I think that that's attractive to Donald Trump because he is the consummate venal politician mm-hmm. or businessman someone who enters that sort of milieu and immediately sees that everything is for sale everything can be bought there's a lot of money to be made but what's interesting is back then in the 80s he wasn't yet someone who merely licensed his name hmm. he still had designs on and to an extent was a builder the problem was he was really bad at it and we saw that with Atlantic City and and many other ventures of his whether they're real estate or otherwise so many of them failed And he frankly had money problems because banks didn't want to lend to him Mm -hmm. because of what they called the Donald tax. And the Donald tax was that you got paid back pennies on the dollar if you loaned this man money. And as a result, he was constantly hard up for funds. He was being offered uh, possibilities in Moscow and in several instances had to turn those possibilities down because he didn't have nearly as much money to build with as he had implied. And so a lot of those failures in Moscow, despite it being such a perfect venue for someone with his venality. A lot of them failed because of his own personal failings as a businessman. And we might say his personal failings, too.
1: So the rule of law and secure banking wasn't working for him in America and in the West. He couldn't get loans in Europe either. will carve out room for Deutsche Bank. But, you know, it was building in Kazakhstan or eyeing property in Kazakhstan that then started to appeal to him. And there's also the New York story. There was a Feeling that he had been shut out of something, there's a conversation he had with Howard Stern where he's asked about whether he thinks he could sleep with Princess Diana or Diane Sawyer, and those are clearly the figures that he, you know, he doesn't have a chance with. He becomes part of Howard Stern's whack pack, calling in on a regular basis on the show, abasing himself for the publicity, becoming a cartoon here but then trading on that in the former Soviet states and other places where it could pass for glamour.
2: Yeah. And I don't I don't want to get too much into pop psychology here, but he really does. Doesn't he present as someone who was overcompensating throughout his life for his personal failings and his own sense of himself as someone who perhaps was not the businessman that he wanted to uh, pose himself to be in polite company and among others, who appears in the real estate industry. He tried in Moscow for many years. As I mentioned, he failed. And as you pointed out, he really had to turn to the former Soviet republics in the 2000s and the early 2010s, Kazakhstan, Georgia, and others to try to build there because they were frankly even more corrupt and even more fluid morally, ethically, and in terms of government practices than Russia was at that point in time. And so he started to find some success there. But Really, it's been many, many years now that this is a man who has largely just licensed his name to people and used his own salesmanship to suggest that his brand has value long after he ceased to be a builder. So the idea that he ran for president on being a successful businessman, I think all of his biographers found that laughable.
1: Right. One of the lawsuits, one of the few lawsuits that forced Trump to finally admit he'd been lying on a number of scores was this Tim O'Brien one about his net worth. And he was finally forced to admit that he didn't have a billion dollars. He had much, much less than that. But the idea that of Trump not being a billionaire, of Trump not being a builder, of Trump not being a successful businessman, it makes him scary because he's hiding so much that's hiding in plain sight. And this gets to proof of collusion that... <sighs> How could someone have that high tolerance for lies and delusions, and how would someone have that much moral flexibility?
2: Well, one thing I'd say is that the high-stakes real estate industry is conducive to that sort of personality, uh, where where bluster can often take the place of substance. One of the Mm -hmm. things I talk about in Proof of Collusion is that there are a number of projects during which he... His son, Don, his daughter, Ivanka, have been accused of trying to defraud investors by pretending that buildings that were actually empty or virtually empty, where they had sold virtually no space yet, uh-huh. were presented to investors as being half full or three quarters full. And somehow, none of those cases, even though some lawsuits were initiated, nothing really ever sticks to the Trumps, even as they engage in behavior Uh, The cheating of independent contractors left and right Mm -hmm. that I think the average voter, particularly a middle class voter, would be enormously offended by not just their sense of dignity, their sense of morality and ethics, but even specifically the idea of someone with that much money, even if he was well overstating his worth, Mm -hmm. consistently taking advantage of people with less money and then consistently doing business with people who had more money but we're really involved in some shady activities, including illegality, corruption and graft at a governmental level, and just a a series of of traits, activities, behaviors, processes, operations you wouldn't want anywhere near the White House.
1: All right. I did open the floor to your many Twitter followers and Trumpcast Twitter followers for questions, and we got a lot of them. So I'm just going to do a few. I don't want to tax your hospitality in the conversation because you've got a lot of book promoting to do. But you and I have talked about the women involved in Trump-Russia and many of them in marketing roles and were explicitly involved in PR or whitewashing. I'm thinking of Ivanka Trump or Hope Hicks who ran Point on Obstruction. There's Russian women, including Natalia Veselnitskaya, who did some of this for oligarchs and for Putin himself, and then also Maria Butina. Are we going to see... Some of these women in the hot seat? Or are they being treated with kid gloves? And specifically, the question on Twitter is why no Ivanka subpoena? Where's Ivanka?
2: I would say that there's no question that some of the women you mentioned are being treated with kid gloves, at least based on what we know. There may be things happening with respect to Mueller and his investigation that we don't know. But Ivanka Trump is her father's top advisor, she has been for many years. There's virtually no major deal he's ever done that he didn't bring her aboard on both to work on and to advise him on. Mm -hmm. By the same token, Hope Hicks was essentially the gatekeeper, uh, along with uh, another woman you didn't mention, Rona Graff, his secretary, was a gatekeeper. And these are two women who are very much in a position to know basically all of his movements, all of his conversations, both on the campaign and then in Hope Hicks's case, uh, and, and actually still to a, a certain extent, Rona Graf's case after his election. And yet we almost never hear their names. Now, what I want to believe is that's because they are in fact being contacted by investigators, but we're just not hearing about it. But particularly, I think that would have leaked with respect to Ivanka Trump. And so there there appears to be a sense that Ivanka Trump is a third rail, which if Robert Mueller touches, he risks being fired indirectly or directly, immediately. And so I think he probably has stayed away for that reason. Mm -hmm. And Hope Hicks may be a similar situation. Donald Trump seems to treat her like a daughter. She was at his side at all times on the campaign. And then after he got into the White House, and she also has sort of disappeared from the picture. Mm -hmm. There is, I think, an element of, I would say, misogyny here. It, It feels like it, that the media has not focused more on these women who played very talented, smart women who were very close to Donald Trump and appear to be very central to this story. And somehow they've been sidelined, it appears by investigators and also by journalists, of course, with the exception of Maria Butina, who's Mm -hmm. likely about to plead guilty in D.C., and Natalia Veselnitskaya, who has become a central figure. But um, Ivanka Trump, I I frankly think there should have been more conversations with and about Yulia Alfarova, who worked for the Aguilarovs, uh-huh. Uh, And then Hope Hicks. I don't know why we're not hearing those names more.
1: It's possible that th- that's because they were somewhat successful in being window dressing for corrupt deals. And the rest of us have fallen for it a little bit. I mean, Ivanka was supposed to be a moderating presence with Jared Kushner. She was supposed to be somehow, you know, she was a former Democrat and she's, you know, can land a sentence with slightly more ease than her father can and knows some multi-syllable words, so I think people had high hopes for her, and somehow letting go of those hopes has seemed to be hard. That's one explanation for why she's out of Mueller's sights. The other thing is she seems to launder the reputations of unsavory characters who we haven't, we don't even discuss, Malaysian investors, Panamanian investors. The project she's worked on, the Baku one, with the, what, Iranian Revolutionary Guard. I mean, her projects really, touch some pretty despicable people, including human traffickers and drug lords. And, you know, it all looks good because somehow it has Ivanka Trump collection perfume on it. It's very harrowing. I've quoted this before, but Bill Browder and Sheldon Whitehouse, in a conversation they had in one of the hearings, discussed a new Cold War between the legitimate world and the illegitimate world. The upside was that when the legitimate world moves toward Accommodating the illegitimate world by kind of marketing initiatives and lobbying and Paul Manafort sort of stuff and Ivanka Trump sort of stuff, it becomes the illegitimate world itself. That Ivanka Trump is right at that crossroads where she makes some characters look palatable to the West and thus turns the United States into a Russia style, you know, a Panama style form of government and economics.
2: I think that's the real fear is that she acts as a sort of interlocutor between these two worlds that somehow makes one less savory and one more savory, but at a level that falls beneath notice. We have to remember that Ivanka Trump is good friends with Leon Black, who was on the board of advisors for the Russian direct investment fund. Uh, Of course, people will remember, hopefully, that Kirill Dmitriev, who runs that fund, met with Eric Prince in the Seychelles in January 2017 Mm. as Donald Trump's envoy. Ivanka Trump was involved in both of the Trump Tower deals we've talked about here, Trump-Rozov and Trump-Alagerov. She also is very close friends with Wendy Dang, who -hmm. allegedly is a former mistress of Vladimir Putin himself. And then if you look at Hope Hicks, the fact is she was on many email chains that are quite significant, including some that appear to involve Carter Page and George Papadopoulos, possibly other people on that all-important National Security Advisory Committee. So before this is over, these women will have significant roles in the Trump-Russia narrative. It's just surprising that it's taken so long for them to come to the forefront, or it appears for the media or investigators to get to them in a big way.
1: Another thing that stands out about Ivanka Trump is that she was big Behind the initiative, the successful initiative to bring Mike Flynn into the campaign as national security advisor. And Mike Flynn, of course, is back in the news. So let's talk Mike Flynn.
2: Yeah, so that's a really important point. Mike Flynn was not put formally by Donald Trump on any of his first three official national security teams during the campaign, he was a shadow national security advisor. I think it's very clear to those who study the Trump-Russia case now why he was a shadow advisor, because Mm -hmm. he was involved in things with Egypt, with Turkey, with Saudi Arabia, with the Russians, that Donald Trump did not want, if at all possible, associated with him or his National Security Advisory Committee. And yet, once he is elected, within 48 hours, Chris Christie, who at the time was running the transition team, Mm -hmm. and who, of course, is no fan of Jared Kushner or vice versa— because of the fact that Chris Christie was involved in putting Jared's father in prison, Chris Christie is fired off the transition by Jared Kushner and his wife, Ivanka. And immediately, Michael Flynn is brought aboard as the head of the national security apparatus of the Trump transition, and then, of course, later the White House. And we all know now what Flynn did as soon as he was in that position. He was already having conversations pre-election with Sergey Kislyak. That was reported by The Washington Post. But during the transition, he's meeting with Russian bankers. He's meeting with Sergei Kislyak, talking about a back channel to the Kremlin with Jared Mm -hmm. Kushner. He's being ordered by Kushner to negotiate with the Israelis, to negotiate with the Russians on sanctions. And all of that was made possible by Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner.
1: That moment during the transition where Flynn keeps getting on the phone and some of or at least one of those conversations with Sergei Kislyak is the one about which he lied to the FBI, to which he's now pleaded guilty. So he definitely spoke to Kislyak. Those transition conversations are harrowing to me once it was pointed out that they violate this old American law act called the Logan Act right, where Flynn was conducting foreign policy, promising to undo some of Obama's sanctions while Obama was still president.
2: Well, and there is at this point in the story, based upon what you're talking about, another woman whose name we haven't mentioned yet, Mm -hmm. who becomes a significant figure, and that's KT McFarland, who was Michael Flynn's deputy national security Mm -hmm. advisor, both on the transition and thereafter. In that final week of December 2016, Michael Flynn makes a number of calls to the presidential transition team minus Mike Pence, which at that point in the last week of December 2016 was at Mar-a-Lago, and he has conversations with KT McFarland about what he should say to Sergey Kislyak on the question of sanctions. Now, clearly, he's not calling his deputy to get her advice; he's calling her and talking to her because of the other people who are at Mar-a-Lago at that point, which includes Donald Trump. Katie McFarland is later asked about her conversations with Michael Flynn, and she lies about those conversations to Congress, which is why she was not confirmed as the ambassador to Singapore, which, by the way, was one of the countries involved in the Rosneft deal, and Donald Trump tried to send her to Singapore as an ambassador. That was blocked because she has a substantial role in those clearly questionable, whether it's Logan Act or even something beyond that, conversations between Michael Flynn and then Donald Trump and those at Mar-a-Lago who clearly would have been in a position of authority to advise him. With Katie McFarland, it appears simply acting in the role of intermediary at that point, but apparently feeling she needed to lie to Congress even about her role as an intermediary.
1: When you say something more than a violation, possibly, something more than a violation of the Logan Act, are you referring to treason?
2: No, I'm not referring to treason, capital T, uh, the the federal statute treason, because that only applies when there's a declared war. I think many people would say that there was an undeclared hot cyber war between Russia and the United States during the campaign uh, and thereafter, but that's not going to qualify for the treason statute. Actually, what I'm referring to is something that people don't talk about nearly enough, and that is the question of whether Donald Trump and his aides, allies, and associates aided and abetted... Russian computer crimes by Mm -hmm. implicitly, but also at many points, explicitly promising the Kremlin large sums of money, even well after Donald Trump knew that the Russians were committing these crimes against America. You're not allowed under the federal aiding and abetting statute to induce someone to commit a crime. And one of the primary ways to induce someone is to pay the money. On August 17th, 2016, Donald Trump and Michael Flynn get Donald Trump's first classified briefing as a presidential candidate. From that point onward, at the very latest, and I'm being generous, dating it to August 17th, 2016, both of them were legally required not to take any action that would induce further crimes by the Russians, because they learned at that briefing that the Russians were, in fact, committing those crimes. Mm. And what does Michael Flynn do? He keeps talking with Kiselyak before the election. He talks with a Russian, top Russian banker and intelligence agent uh, after, during the transition. He speaks with Kislyak multiple times in person and then also by phone during the transition. So, yes, those sanctions negotiations in December by Michael Flynn may well have been criminal because they were part of a deliberate inducement of Russian computer crimes against America.
1: Okay, so that brings us to the reason Flynn's back in the news. Why, when it looks for all the world like he's guilty of much more than lying to the FBI on a single count, is that all... Mueller got him to plead to.
2: So conventionally, what that would suggest is that Robert Mueller believed that Michael Flynn was going to be enormously helpful to him as a cooperating witness. And if you look in proof of collusion at the fact pattern that makes up the Trump Russia case and investigation, Michael Flynn's hands are on more individual overlapping meta narratives within that investigation than almost anyone else. Perhaps I would say than anyone else. Hmm. So from the outside looking in as someone who's done criminal investigative work, I would say that I could certainly understand if in December 2017, Robert Mueller decided this guy is a bad actor, and he normally would be one of the higher up targets in my investigation. But he's the one and we, we all forget this. He immediately after he was fired, publicly said through his attorney, that he had, quote unquote, a story to tell Robert Mueller. Yes, that's now, right. Pe- people forget that because it took nine more months for him to become a cooperator. But he was shopping his story right away and saying that it was a walker of a story. So I think that that's what many people have presumed is that he got the sweetheart deal of the century because he won what criminal investigators and attorneys call the race to the courthouse or the race to mm. the prosecutor's office. The first person to flip gets the best deal. And I think that's what happened with Flint.
1: All right, I want to do a, a final speed round. So I'm going to give you some things to just quickly respond to. Devin Nunes. <laughs>
2: People ask me whether he's going to face any sort of criminal liability for his actions, and I really think that the speech and debate rules for congressmen that allow them to take certain actions within the providence and within the ambit of their congressional duties will keep him from being criminally charged, but there's no question he was on the transition, he's a bad actor, he never should have been in charge of any part of the congressional investigation and he certainly has done everything he can to thwart that investigation.
1: All right, Vice President Michael Pence, is he complicit? Do you think he has liability here?
2: I do not, and that's my least popular answer that I give to people because it's one of their most popular questions and I say that well I think Mike Pence did lie to the press. Well, I think he knew more than people would like him to have known for us to consider him an honest broker with the media and with voters in January and February 2017. The fact is, Mike Pence kept himself aloof from Trump and these other bad actors, really from the time that he was named VP, because I think he saw which way the wind was blowing. His political career was dead in the water prior to Trump. And by staying out of things as much as possible, that's why he wasn't at Mar-a-Lago in the Mm -hmm. final week of 2016, he saved himself the possibility of becoming president, which is just crazy when you think about where his political career was headed.
1: All right. Manafort. What if Trump commuted Manafort's sentence instead of issuing a pardon so he could still take the fifth as a witness? What would the implications of that be?
2: So I think that either a pardon or any sort of of commutation would be obstruction of justice and an impeachable offense, even if we say that Trump has the constitutional right to pardon Paul Manafort, Uh, a pardon can still be an illegal act. It can still be a crime. It can still be an impeachable offense. But I'd also point out that even if we look at the question of commutation, we won't get to that point for a while because there are charges against Paul Manafort that the feds can bring back and that they may well bring back. He has eight charges that he can be tried on again in addition to the new indictments it looks like he's going to face rather soon for Mm. the lies he told after his plea. So Paul Manafort won't even get his final total sentence, which will certainly be a life in prison sentence several times over, I would guess. He won't even get that final sentence for many months. And by then, I think enough will have happened that a commutation would be irrelevant.
1: A friend of mine recently asked me something I'd never even thought about. What would I do if I were Donald Trump at this point? So I'm going to ask you that, since you've done criminal defenses, I haven't. What would you do if you were Trump at this point, or his attorneys? And what is the best case scenario for him?
2: So Donald Trump needs to stay in office as long as he possibly can. Uh, And that means winning the 2020 election and serving out a full term until 2025, January 20th, 2025, because the moment he leaves office, he can be indicted and tried. What that means is Rudy Giuliani is correct, at least from a defense attorney standpoint, to approach this as a purely political case, at least as it relates to Donald Trump. And if you can do that, if you can make this essentially a case that gets tried in the court of public opinion and in the political arena, thereby keeping the Democrats from being able to get 20 colleagues in the Senate to vote for conviction following impeachment, Donald Trump could survive an impeachment, potentially find a way probably with Russian assistance because we haven't done enough on cybersecurity, and that was intentional on Trump's part, win the election in 2020, survive to January 20th, 2025. At that point, he probably would be indicted and tried. But let's be clear, that case would take a very long time. He might well be able to be on bail while that case was being tried. He's not a young man. And so just to be delicate about it, he only has so many years left in his natural life. And so, yes, the key is play it as a political case stay in office until 2025, and then drag out the criminal case to to be blunt about it, such that Donald Trump dies before any conviction of natural causes, to be very clear.
1: So the the best defense for Trump is just hanging on until he kicks the bucket. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Finally, give us the more popular thing, the worst case scenario for Donald Trump.
2: The worst case scenario is that impeachment proceedings begin probably in late 2019, and that by the time the case gets to the Senate, and I think people really mistake this when they talk about the chances of conviction in the Senate, they say, well, there's no chance 67 senators would ever vote to convict because everything's so partisan. People have to remember that at any such time that those 67 senators would need to vote for conviction, they will have the complete Mueller report which will likely be several thousand pages, it will be exponentially more information than is in the public sphere right now or even in the hands of congressmen and women. And so I believe, I have enough of a belief in the rule of law and in our system of government that once all the evidence is in the hands of those hundred senators, I do believe that 20 Republican senators will do the right thing at some point in early 2020 and convict this president of high crimes and misdemeanors.
1: My guest has been Seth Abramson. He's the author of Proof of Collusion and a prolific Twitterer. If you're tough enough to handle the truth, follow him at Seth Abramson on Twitter. Thank you so much for being here, Seth.
2: Thank you for having me so much.
1: That's it for today's show. Tell us what you think. We're on Twitter and we listen to your feedback. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. Now, my interview with Seth Abramson ran so long that we ended up getting a whole other bonus episode. Seth gives up all kinds of fascinating secret stuff for the true Mueller geeks, the ones basically getting a postdoc and all this stuff. We're putting it on Slate+. Plus all the ad-free podcasts and plenty of extras are too. So if you have to hear all the Trump-Russia news, if you want to be part of, oh, say the most important world historical event of our time, sign up for Slate Plus. It's $35 in the first year. You'll get all our podcasts without ads and many, many other perks. So go to slate.com slash trumpcast plus to sign up for Slate Plus today. That's slate.com slash trumpcast plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Merritt Jacob. John D. Domenico is, as always, our voice of Donald Trump. And I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks again for listening to Trumpcast.